This is MIR Radio, a podcast where we feature single episodes discussing relevant topics with experts in order to better understand them. I'm your host, Pramita Bakshi, and today we're sitting down with Ms. Catherine Stewart to discuss the Christian nationalist base of U.S. politics, and furthermore, the magnitude of their influence and control over the country's affairs. Thank you for coming to the show. Joining us in today's discussion and providing an expert perspective is journalist and author Ms. Catherine Stewart. Ms. Stewart began her journalism career back in 2011, and she has since contributed numerous op-ed columns to both The Guardian and The New York Times. Her latest piece correlating the slow federal response to the pandemic in the U.S. to President Trump's connections with the far right and anti-science conservatives. Furthermore, Ms. Stewart's interests relate to controversies over religious freedom and the separation of the church and the state, and her books include The Good News Club and The Power Worshippers. Ms. Stewart, thank you for joining us today and offering your time and expertise on the subject. Before we proceed, would you like to give the listeners a quick intro about yourself and what led to your interest in U.S. politics, specifically in regards to all your work focusing on the separation between the church and the state? Thanks for asking. It's really great to join the discussion today. Um, I am Catherine Stewart. I'm the author of The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, that book just came out this year. I've been writing about the religious right, politics, policy, and controversies over the separation of church and state for about a decade. And I first got into this topic, uh, to your question, uh, back in 2009, when a good news club came to my daughter's public elementary school in Santa Barbara, California. Now, Good News Clubs are designed to convert very little children in their very earliest years of learning into a deeply fundamentalist form of evangelical Christianity. And I was really astonished to learn that there were thousands of these kinds of clubs operating in public schools nationwide in America, and they were targeting elementary-aged kids. I mean, kids who are too young to read with the message that they're going to go to hell without Jesus. In our own community, I saw how these clubs were confusing very little children into thinking that their school supported a particular form of religion. And they were the people leading the clubs were using that misinformation among those children to get the kids to target their other kids at school, uh, in particular their non-Christian peers, for faith-based bullying and bigotry. So these types of clubs seemed wildly inappropriate in a religiously diverse public school environment. You know, public schools are supposed to be for everybody. But at first, I really thought they were a relic of the American past. And it turns out I was really wrong about that. So when I saw the chaos that the arrival of this club provoked in our own public school community, I decided to learn more about the clubs and the movement behind them. So I went to their national convention in Alabama. I attended Good News Clubs across the country and went through one of their training programs. The more I learned about these clubs and the movement that they represented, the movement to sort of insert a very particular religious viewpoint in the public schools, so the more concerned I became. I was really stunned by the movement's legal sophistication and its determination its coherence and very high level of strategic thinking. This is really emblematic of the religious right. So I published a book about the topic in 2012 and over the years just sort of kept on writing and digging deeper. And, um, you know, I, I, I realized that the good news clubs and the religious rights attack on public education was really just one part of a much larger attack on America 
as a modern secular democracy. Thank you so much, Ms. Stewart. So in your opinion, or at least to you, what is Christian nationalism and why does it matter? Well, Christian nationalism is basically the idea that the United States was founded as a so-called Christian nation and that our laws should be based on the Bible. It's the idea that we've moved away from this conception of America and that somehow we have to get back to that. And it matters because Christian nationalism is really not on the fringes of American political life anymore. It's at the center, and you know, under the Trump administration that has been at the center of power. This is the movement that put Trump into office in 2016, and it was backing him in 2020 in wildly, you know, in huge numbers. Um, apparently not uh, large enough. Uh, they were not en enough of a share of the electorate this time to put him over the top, but it was very, very close. Um, now, the ideology of Christian nationalism, this is why I think it's concerning. It's a really anti-democratic ideology because it says that the foundation of legitimate government is not, you know, in our, our uh, long history of incorporating different diverse communities into a, however imperfectly, into diverse society or a constitution or founding principles. They say it's really in a particular religion. And they insist that that's what makes us distinctive rather than our democratic system of government or the fact that we live in a democratic public, republic or our constitutions I mentioned earlier. So it's, um, you know, it's also not just an ideology, but it's also a way of mobilizing and then often manipulating a large subsection of the public and persuading them to vote for the candidates that the movement favors. But you know, I, I want to say something about what the movement isn't. I hope it's clear that this movement is not a religion. It is not Christianity. It is a movement that is exploiting religion for political purposes. It's getting, you know, getting the rank and the movement leaders are kind of getting the rank and file to vote on what they consider to be the Christian position, so-called Christian position, on certain issues like abortion, and then getting to them to throw their support behind these hyper-conservative political candidates that the movement favors. So it's not also just about symbolism. What's at stake is not merely whether we're allowed to express our sincerely held beliefs in the public square. Of course we are. Um, one can do that without uh, seeking to impose a theocracy. The thing that's at stake in the rise of religious nationalism in the United States is not just where, whether we're going to blur the line between church-state separation or offend certain people. The thing that's at stake really is the most fundamental organization of our political system. And it's about whether the United States will continue as a constitutional democracy in a pluralist society uh, or not. So, you know, I, I think it's helpful in trying to understand this movement to distinguish between the leaders and the followers of the movement. The sort of leadership of the movement are the ones sort of setting the agenda and the followers, many of them, you know, they're a large group of divert, uh, and very diverse group with different sort of interests and backgrounds and ideas. And I think what a lot of them vote for uh, voted for Trump, for instance, or vote for hyper-conservative candidates that the movement favors, they're not really trying to enact any significant changes in the way our government is run. They're really kind of making a statement about themselves and what they value. So for them, their identity could be said to be Christian nationalists in a very loose way. They're kind of making a statement about who they are. But for the leaders of the movement, it's really a different story. We're talking about, you know, heads of right-wing policy groups, legal advocacy groups, data initiatives, networking organizations, legislative initiatives and the like. 
their aims are much more ambitious and they have much more to do with um, organizing our society in, in a very different way. Some would argue that Donald Trump looks like an unlikely figure for, you know, people who call themselves devout Christians. So why does the movement continue to support him despite his flaws? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, in 2016, 81% of white evangelicals supported Trump. And the data coming out of 2020 suggests that he got the same amount of support, 81 or even 82%. So why, you know? Um, well, one reason for their support is really transactional. I mean, Trump is supporting judges that are favorable to their positions in the so-called culture wars. He's promised to appoint uh, pro-life judges uh, who seek to end abortion rights. He uh, sort of forced Amy Coney Barrett into the Supreme Court in you know, very short order. I think that sort of delighted a lot of the religious right leaders and the rank and file who've been persuaded to vote uh, on the abortion issue, and they say the abortion issue is sort of like the be all and end all. So he sort of says, I'm going to give you pro-life judges and he's going to do that. And, you know, he's also uh, funneling public money to religious schools and other organizations through his Department of Education, his policies. And the leaders of the movement want to enact the kinds of the far-right economic policies that many of the movement's plutocratic funders support. So Trump is delivering on all of these promises you know, far-right or libertarian economic policy, right-wing and the so-called culture wars. I think their support for Trump goes a lot further than that. I've just been looking online at some of the mm, videos that are being posted by some of the, you know, religious right leaders and, you know, tr true, you know, devotees, people like Michelle Bachman um, and many others. And, you know, they just are in disbelief. They can't believe that he lost the election. And they still say things like, well, God appointed Trump to lead our country. And here's the thing, you know, his, I think, clears, you know, they compare him to biblical, biblical kings like King David and King Cyrus, uh, an imperfect vessel to whom God chose to enact his will and, and restore America to its so-called Judeo-Christian roots. This is the thing about kings. They're not kings of democracies, are they? They are the law unto themselves. Trump's clear disdain for the rules is in a way part of the appeal. He's got this transparently amoral character, but that makes him the ideal leader of a religious nationalist state. He's not a democratic leader. He represents the law lawlessness of the authoritarian. So he's kind of putting himself above the law in a way that a king would. And I think that he is representative of the authoritarian impulses of some number of his supporters who do not believe in equality or pluralism in the first place. Many people have characterized and continue to characterize the movement as a white movement, but the racial politics of the movement seem complex. Would you be able to comment on that? Absolutely. I mean, the movement is often characterized as a white movement. And for many of the white pink people in the rank and file, I think it's an implicitly rather than explicitly white movement. Because for them, it involves a, a vision of recovering a nation that was once supposedly both Christian and white. So it's kind of identity politics in that it's tying the idea of America to a specific set of like approved religious and cultural identities. But, you know, leaders of the movement understand that the electoral future is not ethnically homogenous. So their outreach efforts have sought to include conservative Latino and black pastors and other figures 
Um, I was just looking at one of the Latino uh, outreach organizations called Latin Exodus or something like that. It's like an outreach specifically to Latino voters who, by the way, I think um, among Latino men, uh, 2020 um, exit poll data is suggesting that Trump made gains. But, you know, they're really reaching out to um, specifically Latino pastors in an effort to get their votes of their congregations, it's, you know, with the same sort of messaging about, you know, biblical vote. So there's an irony that these pastors of color are being enlisted to fight the culture wars that are driving support for a political party that has made voter suppression and race-based gerrymandering a strategic part of their plan. That's how they win. They, you know, they, uh, they've been engaged in race-based voter suppression and gerrymandering for years. So, you know, movement leaders like to say that they're, you know, not racist and all, but they tend to paper over the ways in which hyper-conservative religion and racism can reinforce one another. And of course, you know, Donald Trump has appealed very openly to the racism of, of many of his supporters. That's also very interesting because I remember whilst we were watching the voting a couple of days ago and a lot of my friends and I were just confused as to why there was a higher population of Latinos voting for Trump than we would have expected due to immigration policies and such. But it's just that goes to show that no one really thinks about how religion plays a factor into all of this. Absolutely huge. You know, when I was researching my book, I have a chapter, I think chapter four, where I, I went to a, an event at a Chula Vista, California, megachurch that was held specifically for Latino pastors and their families. And after a speaker gets up there and says, when you're talking to your congregations about financial issues, what's more important, the minimum wage or life? And when you put it that way, it's sort of like, what's more important, a few extra dollars or life itself? Also said, you know, it's like a group uh, of Latino pastors in Southern California, many who are ministering to congregations, many of them are recent immigrants to, to America, and they were saying, you know, talking, it was all about like the homosexual agenda and how they're, you know, entering the public schools and teaching terrible things to your kids. They gave us this, these handouts that were incredibly misleading. I had to go back and sort of fact check it with, with all the sort of unified school districts to see, are they really teaching this stuff in the public schools? And, and all the sort of PR reps for the public school districts were like, no, that's really misleading or false. Like some of the stuff is not being taught in any public schools. And some of the material that they're suggested, suggesting is being taught at the elementary level is taught at the high school level. Look, I'm a parent of two public school children as well. And I really care about what my kids learn in public school. And I want to make sure that what they're learning in their health education class is age appropriate. But so they were suggesting the stuff being taught at the kindergarten to th third grade level, which I was like, wow, that's really inappropriate. But then at the high school level, I'm like, yeah, of course, this is what kids need to know at this age. So they were just engaging in a lot of what I felt was um, misleading messaging on that particular front. And, you know, when I was talking to some of the pastors in the audience, you know, later we were sort of hanging out and, and chatting and people were like, you know, our families are really important to us. And, you know, our family is the most important thing that you have. It's the most valuable thing that we have. We really care about what our children learn. You know, we really value education and want to know what, what our children are learning. And this is really concerning to us. So they, they find ways to reach these um, different, you know, um, sectors of the electorate with messages that are going to shape their, the way they vote. 
And then with, what they do with these pastors is they give them videos to air at church, voter guides, uh, data tools, and other very sophisticated tools that they can use to turn out their congregations to vote. I also believe that, you know, you'd agree that it's pretty clear this is a patriarchal movement. How important is the idea of patriarchy to the way this movement operates? Well, there's a segment of um, the sort of faith world that is like all in for Trump, which is sort of charismatic and Pentecostal, um, new apostolic reformation. And they actually embrace or tolerate, I should say, women in leadership positions. I'm thinking about people like Paula White, for instance, um, who we know said, you know, Trump has been raised up by God, or people like Cindy Jacobs and, and some other faith leaders who are, are female, and, um, and that's a much more sort of, um, in a way, gender equitable side of the movement. But with the exception of that segment, Christian nationalism has normalized the idea of patriarchy, both at church and in home. So um, Ralph Dronger, He's, I write about him in chapter two of my book. He teaches Bible study, has taught Bible study to as many as 12 out of 15 of Trump's current and former cabinet members. He's like, you know, very politically connected um, pastor targeting political leaders at the highest levels of power. So he's an, if you get into his writings, you can see he's an ardent and unapologetic advocate of male supremacy and female subordination at home and in church. So he got his degree from um, a place called the Master's Seminary, which is in Southern California. Its leader, John MacArthur, was also an ardent supporter of patriarchy. And he expresses them really clearly in a sermon you can find online. You should look it up. It's, it's actually kind of funny. It's called The Willful Submission of the Christian Wife. This would really be funny if it wasn't so widely accepted within this world. So... Um, He's talking about how Christian women need to, quote unquote, rank themselves under their husbands. And he says, your task is at home. Your job is at home. And, uh, you know, it's, listen, if you're a married person, of course, you know, part of your job is, you know, has to do with care and love for your family. But he's specifically advocating for a gender order at home. So I, I spoke to, when I was researching my book, this uh, fellow who worked at the Master Seminary for over two decades. And he told me, if your wife worked, he, meaning John MacArthur, would fire you. Or if he liked you, he'd give you a raise so she could stay at home. So this fellow ran the library at the Master Seminary. And for a time when he was at the library, he said he was even discouraged from buying books by female writers. And when a very famous female theologian, I believe from Germany, uh, I think her name is Ata Leninger, she came to visit. It was a very rare visit. She's like very well-regarded writers, um, seminarian, theologian. She wasn't even allowed to meet students on campus there. So you can see that like sort of the idea of patriarchy is not only like, it's not even soft patriarchy. It's really kind of overt and, and very widespread. Now, not every sector of the movement is so extreme, but today in most of the conservative churches that drive support for the movement, including some of the sort of in England, they call them the happy, clappy churches, where you got the hipster, hipster pastor, who's always a man with a beard and sneakers, and you got the worship band, and, you know, it looks like a rock concert 10 in the morning. If you dig into their documents that elaborate on their theology, you'll find language advocating patriarchy at home and in church. And if you look at their board of directors or their leadership, 
It's like, huh, you're right, it's all men. <laughs> but you know, it's also important to understand that they know that this makes them vulnerable in today's relatively gender equal society. But I think a lot of the hipster churches in particular have responded by developing rhetoric that allows them to pretend that they're actually champion freedom for women, like giving them a more freedom. And, and you'll find a lot of young women committing themselves to the movement in the belief that they're actually helping women and not hindering them. You know, I happen to believe that they're deluded about that, but you have to understand that that is their position. They're actually sometimes very sophisticated in how they're going to frame this thing. They'll say things like men and women are equal or with different roles. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like perhaps a time for women that leaders of the movement now feel the need to couch their demand for patriarchy and male domination in the language of pseudo-equality. I think it's also worth noting that some of the religious leaders like Bob Jones, who is an ardent segregationist, used similar language in his sermons referring to black people and white people. The idea is that everyone's equal in the eyes of God, of course, so don't worry and don't call me a racist, but God created um, black people and white people for different purposes. So it's really just bigotry by another name. What would you classify as the movement's policy objectives? I think for leaders of the movement, you know, again, the heads of the religious right policy groups, networking groups, media and legislative initiatives and data organizations and the like, rather than rank and files leadership, their vision involves, number one, a lot more power for themselves and their networks and for the political leaders, of course, that they support. Many, many of them also look forward to a time when only Christians in their approved versions of the religion are in charge of all major areas of government and society and when those leaders answer to their spiritual guides. Um, they're also looking forward to a time when they can rely on the government for two things. Number one, a constant flow of taxpayer money and policies that privilege their religion. And I want to repeat again, look, Christianity in America is incredibly diverse. Um, I think most American Christians reject the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. I would posit that the largest share of Biden voters also themselves identify as Christian. But when we're talking about what they say when they define themselves as Christian, is a very particular understanding of the very diverse um, Christian faith. Meanwhile, you've written uh, that the success of Christian nationalists have been stunning. How do you believe Trump has contributed to this said success? I think the first thing we can look at is the courts. Trump appointed 220 judicial nominees to the federal bench, including three Supreme Court justices he's appointed. His cabinet uh, figures like Betsy DeVos, who's a longtime activist, who appears to share the movement's contempt for public education. He appointed Alex Azar as the head of the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, who in that position established a division of so-called conscience and religious freedom, which was designed to permit healthcare workers to deny legal and often medically indicated healthcare services to certain patients as a matter of their religious conscience. Um, Trump's cabinet and the justices he has appointed um, support policies that also funnel uh, greater amounts of taxpayer money to the conservative religious organizations that have supported him in the movement. So I think that he's also given leaders of the movement 
unparalleled access and power. So Trump really gave them a lot. I've been to a lot of events like Marches for Life and Values Voter Summits and other gatherings where Trump has appeared, where he always says, you know, I've given you everything you asked for. And in fact, I think I've given you more. It's always like for him a transaction, like a deal, like I did for me, I did for you, and you need to do for me. You need to continue to support me. But he's always reminding them, he and his surrogates, like Mike Pence, are always reminding movement leaders what he's given them. And he's right. Gave them everything they wanted and more. Where does the movement get its financing? Oh, there are three sources of financing, three major sources. The first is the plutocratic subsection of America's plutocrats. Look, there are you know, we have a number of uh, people who have a lot of wealth do not support this movement, but there are a long, a large number of those who do, including the DeVos Prince juggernaut. It's sort of a huge family, the Sky Family Foundations. A lot of it comes through family foundations, the Green family, the Wilkes brothers who are sort of fracking billionaires, and many other sort of groups that I, and families uh, and individuals that I describe in my book. So, a large source of the funding comes from those folks. And a lot of times what they'll do is sometimes they'll donate to initiatives directly, but sometimes they'll donate to what they call donor-advised groups, where you can see how much money they spent to the group, and then you can see how much money the group spent on a particular initiative, but you can't really track, you know, like the money goes into a big pot, and then the pot is the one dispersing the funds. And one of the big found uh, donor-advised funds is called the National Christian Foundation, which donates to large numbers of um, these sort of conservative religious policy groups, legal advocacy groups, and the like. So that's number one. That's one source of funding. A second source of funding is the rank and file, who, you know, a large part of the movement's daily activity is getting small dollar donations from the rank and file. So I'm on a lot of newsletters for like the Faith and Freedom Coalition, uh, Values Voter Summit, uh, Students United for Life, these kinds of organizations. And I get email from them almost every day, you know, can you please chip in for this? I think they've really mastered the art of uh, small dollar donations. The third source of their funds, of course, is taxpayer money. I think the movement is really aiming to, look, Religious organizations are already tax exempt, so that's a subsidy. It's almost like a gift from the government. But, you know, that's fine as far as I'm concerned, as long as um, you, um, you know, buy by the rules, which are you're not supposed to politic from the pulpit, you know. So they, they already received tax subsidies, special exemptions, parsonage exemptions, um, grants, and other, uh, and other means. How are activists, would you say, like activists such as David Barton, justifying an increase in handouts to churches whilst decreasing government aid to the poor? It's really a great question. Um, I think to a largely underappreciated extent, the movement is allied with a hyper-conservative, like libertarian, pro, you know, far-right, pro-corporate wing of the Republican Party. So even while they are trying to obtain you know, funding for their own organizations, they're saying you know, uh, government funding of job training or food aid or things like that is against the biblical model. And this is sort of what they do. Like they don't have any problem uh, with government money going to the poor as long as it passes through churches first. So they're aiming to get taxpayer funds to their organizations 
And then they can deliver the aid, but if the taxpayer funds are delivered through vouchers or other types of indirect means, they can proselytize along with the aid that they deliver. So it's really interesting. It's like, you know, they almost want government money so that they can deliver proselytization along with their aid. Now, this is, you know, not to overlook the fact that many faith-based organizations do tremendous work. Sometimes they'll go into communities where nobody else goes. They'll establish healthcare um, initiatives, uh, initiatives that help working families. And this is not to diminish the value of the work that they do, but just pointing to the hypocrisy of some of the movement leaders like David Barton, who would love to see a greater share of public funds going to uh, churches and meanwhile decries direct aid for the poor. He says it's like a, a form of slavery. And how would you say the religious right are utilizing the term religious freedom to mask their true objectives? Well, true religious liberty is the freedom of thought, conscience, and worship. It's the freedom to worship any god or sacred idea or none. And it also includes the freedom from being required or obliged to participate uh, or finance in any religion if you don't want to do that. So religious liberty is an idea that is sacred to us in our constitution. I think it's sacred to almost every human being on earth. You know, so freedom of conscience, worship, thought. But you know, in the hands of this movement, the term religious liberty has come to mean something like its opposite. And it's become an Orwellian term that means a kind of religious privilege. It's been turned into the idea that people who believe so-called correctly should be permitted to discriminate against others whose characteristics or very being offends their so-called sincerely held religious beliefs. I mean, obviously, most obviously, LGBT individuals, members of religious minority groups, or the non-religious. This clearly privileges certain religious views over others. So if you're say, commitment to equality and equal treatment under the law is rooted in your own sincerely held religious beliefs or your conscience. There is no liberty in this type of religious liberty for you. For my final question, would you say that Joe Biden's views in any way, if at all, align with this Christian nationalist movement? Why or why not? A great question. And, um, you know, we're going to be learning a lot more about Joe Biden in the coming days. But I do want to point out that some of the exit data is showing that um, 81% of the sort of conservative religious cohort that makes up the rank and file of this movement um, cast their ballot for Trump, and only 14% cast their ballot for Biden. And that, I think, says something. Now, Biden is a a cradle Catholic. He um, has been a practicing Catholic his whole life. He put together a faith coalition of over 350 faith leaders. He has a very strong sort of evangelical outreach. He's, he's had very strong outreach to other religious and faith communities. So he's, um, you know, the opposite of someone who's hostile to faith. But I think we can expect to see a lot of attacks on him coming from the sort of hyper-conservative religious nationalists who will allege that he is not an authentic Catholic and not the right kind of Christian. And but you know, it's really interesting. This is the, these are the types of attacks that have been levied at progressive religious figures for centuries. Like I'm thinking about 
the abolitionist theologians, and there were, uh, I wrote about a dozen of them in my book. These are people who argued against slavery from pulpits. Uh, Frederick Douglass said they were humble pulpits, meaning that they tended to not be terribly well-funded, but they were arguing using the Bible uh, as an argument against slavery and saying that this is a truly biblical position, that slavery is against the Bible. And yet they too were called heretics and atheists by the pro-slavery theologians, which is another group in, of Americans theological in our history, and I, met, I write about some of those too in my book, who argued for slavery, again, using the Bible. It's like there was a sort of tension between the pro-slavery theologians and the abolitionist theologians, and the pro-slavery theologians liked to call the abolitionist theologians atheists and heretics, and, um, and they called the sort of language that they were using against slavery as a form of heresy. And they, as Frederick Douglass wrote, were uh, the well-funded and the powerful theologians of that day, you know, certainly among the um, you know, representatives of the Southern Presbyterian Church and, and many other sort of denominations. So there's always been this tension within America. I mean, American faith is so interesting and so diverse, and I really wish I could sort of study it and write about it without having to think about politics. But it's, there's always been a kind of tension between the, the cohort that wants to use religion to argue for just freedom and liberty and justice and equality and pluralism and acceptance and those who are sort of arguing for a much sort of strict biblical literalism, the idea of hierarchies ordained by God and rooted in their reading of the Bible. It's an evolving story and uh, we'll see how it plays out. <laughs> Miss Stewart, I'd like to once again thank you for your time and for letting the listeners know more about this particular issue you care about. That's it for this edition of MIR Radio. Thank you for listening and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Miguel International Review for more up-to-date insight and analysis of global issues and international affairs.